Gregoire and Dan Beeson are definitely smart enough to know better. Hello and welcome to Smart Enough to Know Better, a podcast of science, comedy, and ignorance. I'm Dan Beeston. And I am Gregoire. And welcome to episode one million. What? Of Smart Enough to Know Better. What? That's episode 64 for all you primates out there. <laughs> oh, you computer geek with your binaries. Zeros and ones, zeros and ones, zeros and ones, zeros and ones. Zeros I do, ones, I do like absolutes. Ooh, sorry, I got Dr. Who. And in episode 64, all one million, we'll be talking to an anthropologist about brain plasticity. A neuroanthropologist. If that doesn't make you excited, nothing ever will. But before we get to that, uh-huh. remember a little while ago I was talking about mosquito vacuum like oh, mosquito yes. magnet traps? Yes, 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 yes. Trying to, I looked up to a, see... You live, in a, you live in a mosquito full area? I now live in a swamp, <laughs> in a shack on chicken legs. Good, yes, good. Uh, just like Baba Yaga. Uh, Baba Yaga. But we did have a little bit of a plague of mosquitoes here recently, mm-hmm. and we were getting a bit sick of it. And so I looked into the mosquito magnets. Yes. They cost about 500 bucks a pop. Wow. And you've got to buy a big propane tank. Whoa. To, or something, or some sort of... That's called a flamethrower. You realise yeah, it's yeah, yeah. a firing flame to burn insects. Which would be wonderful. But to be brilliant. But alas, no. But oh. I did get a little tiny mini one, mm-hmm. which uses just some sort of chemical in the light. And so it lures them in with the light and sends off a bit of carbon dioxide as well. Working gangbusters. Good to hear. I'm glad. No, no malaria for me. That's right. Uh, no Ross River fever for and, the Dan. And but you and you don't actually care about dengue fever. Don't anymore, care about dengue you fever. Are immune to dengue fever. That's amazing. <laughs> Dan Beeston got one of the world's first dengue fever injections. Yes, and quite frankly, any day now they'll say yes, it does work. Oh right, <laughs> they're still not too sure. They're still not sure. They're oh, okay. still running tests. But right. I was part of those tests. Yes, right. And when they finally go, yep, we hit it out of the park, then that's me. <laughs> You'd be safe. To be safe. Mm. Yeah. You know who who aren't safe? People who aren't safe. Uh, children. Well, children aren't safe. But they're uh, so dumb. No, <laughs> they get in such ridiculous predicaments. This is not what I'm talking about, though. So stunt rate car races. No, 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 no. Daredevils. Muslims. 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 It's really... They're not safe. I've read the internet. That's true. I've and... seen. I've read the comments on newspaper sites. It's basically, the way I'm mentioning this is because a group in the UAE called the General Authority of Islamic Affairs and Endowments has issued a fatwa barring Muslims from living on Mars. No Muslim is allowed to live on Mars. You know that's Mars so, 1. So if a Muslim finds himself on Mars, they must immediately commit suicide. No, they must immediately get, no, they must immediately get off Mars. Oh, I see. No, they're, not, they're not allowed to kill themselves. They're not allowed to kill themselves. That's the whole point. Ah. Because in the, uh, in the Holy Quran, verse 429, uh-huh, uh, it says, Do not kill yourself or one another. Indeed, Allah is to you ever merciful. So they say, because of that, it's too dangerous, so dangerous to go to Mars that you'll probably die. Because, you know, you know, Mars 1 said if you go to Mars, then you'll probably die up there. That company? Yep. Yep. So this general authority of Islamic affairs and the downwards have gone, well, that's it, Muslims. You can't go. Not allowed to go. It's too damn dangerous. So I wonder what percentage does that kick in if things are now too damn dangerous? Because... Let's face it, the, the road toll in, a, in the world, every year, thousands of people die on roads. Like oh, tens millions. of thousands of people, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's thousands in Australia, I suppose. So does that mean, so what cutoff point do we say that's now too dangerous, Muslims can no longer drive cars? Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or eat red meat. Or eat red meat. You, might, you, may, you may die from streptococci or something. Ah. You, you wouldn't even want to go outside. Well, because there's a one in a million, well, not one, one in so many million chances a meteorite is going to come down and wipe out all life on Earth. Mm-hmm. So we shouldn't be living on Earth. 
Oh, yeah. At what true. level do we just declare... All Muslims are required by law to have mosquito magnets. <laughs> just you... because mosquitoes are so dangerous. That's right. They, they kill a lot of people. In fact, malaria is one of the top killers. Top the... killers in the world. Yeah, that's right. So there you go. So I'm, I'm thinking about anyway, that. Anyway, well, that's, I feel sorry for Muslims who are, who are listening who can't go to Mars. But that does give more Mars to me. Yeah. That's pretty good. That's uh, so I. You're not claim, Muslim. I I know. I claim no religion. What's with the beard then? That's a, I, I I want to look like Tony Stark. That's a religion I can get behind. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, Professor Greg Downey. Welcome, Professor Downey. Uh, it's good to be here. Well, hang on, two Gregs. I I don't know. How, I didn't realize I was being replaced, Dan. I didn't um, realize that was part of the deal. What was what's going on here? Maybe we could call you Dave for the rest of the, for the duration <laughs> well, of the interview. Well, why can't we call our interviewee a different name? Because he's out. He's guest. liable not to respond. Yes. <laughs> fine, fine. I'll just be sitting. I'll just be Greg too. That's fine. I could find a more. Uh, I could find a ruder name to call you. <laughs> no, no, I'm fine. By. No, 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 I'm fine. Thanks. One of our listeners, Elena Mitchell. Is mm. actually one of your students, although I don't think you've ever met her. Okay. <laughs> uh, she has. She goes to university and she watches some pre-recorded oh. or streamed stuff about anthropology. Yes. And she fell in love with you. She filled out her entire exercise book in like love hearts and such. <laughs> so she's been listening to our podcast and said, "You've got to get Professor Downey on because he'd be great." And I went, "Well, we'll see about that." <laughs> Because I'm, wonderful, wonderful. I'm trying to replace you in her heart. <laughs> <laughs> well, good, good. It sounds a little strange to me. I'm a little uncomfortable by that, but that's okay. Excellent, Hooray! excellent. We started the, right the interview. Foot. Yes, yes, we're off on the right foot. Yes, yes, that's good. <laughs> now, who is Professor Downey? How uh, are you? A, are you a real professor or just a time traveler? Uh, no, I'm a real professor. I'm a professor of anthropology, and I study neuroanthropology, which is the relationship between the brain and culture. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Great. Yeah, it's a, a, lot, a lot of syllables, but it's a pretty simple idea. <laughs> so you teach at a university or some sort of... Yeah, video I teach it. conferencing <laughs> space. It's a video rental shop. Yes. No, I, uh, I teach at Macquarie University in Sydney. I used to be at the University of Notre Dame, but I fell in love with an Australian and absconded to Australia. And that's the story I'm sticking with. Uh-huh. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that's what everyone who came to Australia on a boat says. It's like, oh, exactly. We, yeah, exactly. No, we fell in love with an Australian. We the did it for in love. my pocket means nothing. <laughs> well, the no, exactly. gone from your pocket. Well, yes. <laughs> You have been very interested in all of the senses that human mm-hmm. beings have at the moment. I did field work when I was first doing my PhD down in Brazil on capoeira, which is an Afro-Brazilian kind of martial art dance. And the more I did it, the more I realized that people I was working with were not perceiving things the same way I was. You know, music, their own bodies, they could balance and do stuff that was crazy on their heads. And, and so I, I started to look into the, what we call the plasticity of the human senses. So hang on, hang on. Brazil, dancing, how their yeah, bodies it's... move. I think that I, I don't think this is going well for me so far as replacing you in Alana's heart. You sound like some sort of sexy anthropology spy. Oh, look, I, I can pick my field sites really well. Let me tell you that. <laughs> I, I, I've, are, I've you, got... are you Indiana Jones? That's what you are. Do you, do no, you no. go to really exciting places and like, you know, like you throw me the whip and I'll throw you the idol kind of stuff? You can the tell complete, us. You can tell your... The complete opposite. My friends go to these really hard field sites. You know, they, they hike in the swamp up to their neck for two days or they go to the Arctic. And I go someplace with like lots of beaches and tourist attractions. 
attractions yeah. and and lovely music and annual food festivals. That that's my gig. Yeah, that's, so you've done I, well. You've landed on your feet, sir. <laughs> I I commend you. Well done. Uh, exactly. He's, he's so I've got this anthropology thing figured out. Let me tell you. <laughs> he's researching. It's not a real job, is it? Let's say, hang on. I'm going to say this. It's, this is just a, a long, long holiday. That's what he, it's he's, perfect. Oh, he's researching anthropology one beautiful lady at a time. <laughs> yeah. No. I've kept, I definitely got this gig figured out. I told myself if I ever, ever had to get a real job, I would. <laughs> but so far, this has been a fantastic gig. And I do love anthropology. I mean, what could be more fun than studying the weird things that humans do? We are truly the strangest species on the planet. So why not enjoy it and study it? So when you're saying that their senses, uh, they were perceiving the world differently to you, in, like in major ways or you know that they were echolocating? Or, well, actually, what does it mean? What did you mean they were perceiving differently? This is what I started to look into because I think that a lot of anthropologists had sort of figured that the, the brain and the body were, were kind of set by genes mm. and that culture kind of came in sort of late in the game, how you interpret things or how you make sense of it. But the more I hung out with these folks, the more I realized that some of this stuff was kind of subconscious or pre-conscious. And so I started to look into the science of actual, the neurological change that's possible in people's senses. So I've gone on to study much more exotic versions, um, been talking with humans who echolocate. Um, hey, what? But, I, was, I was kidding. No, I've, I've, it, it's like <laughs> a really, really fantastic blind activist named Daniel Kish. And I've had some long conversations about the fact that he teaches blind children how to echolocate. What? It's, it's incredible. You're uh, making this up. He can echolocate. You can, daredevil. You can, <laughs> you can look it up on the, the ultimate you know, resource for citations, which is YouTube. <laughs> Type his name in, Daniel Kish. Can and you he please will... be my professor at university? Because <laughs> I, I, I can't get away with that when I write things. And, oh, uh... Great. I'm trying to steal Elena away, and now he's taken you. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's dreamy. Anyway, so no, echo, echolocation. So, so you can look this up, and there's a man who can echolocate. Well, there's, there's actually a growing movement of people who can echolocate. It's not just one person. That, okay. They've tested individuals in laboratories. They've tested them you know, in sonic chambers and found that, in fact, some of these folks can detect objects as small as a credit card at two meters from the echoes that come back from it. I can't even find the credit card with vision. I mean, yeah, no, it, it's, it's, it is, it, it's the kind of thing, like I said, this is the path that I've gone down since I saw these people doing these amazing things with balance. And it consistently blows my mind. It just consistently blows me away that people are able to be trained to do sensory tasks that for a normal person are simply, I mean, they're not just impossible. They're kind of unimaginable. Okay. So that's, this is the extreme things. Echolocation, a whole new sense. Well, well, I mean, it's hearing, but it's still calling it hearing is not really. Yeah. There. It's a whole other sense. It may as well. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's, it uses the ears, but really that's the only connection to hearing. Okay. So, <laughs> so the, the, the cap, capoeira, is that how you pronounce it? Capoeira? Yep. Yep. The capoeira. Oh, so the, um, so that's their, their, um, so, so what senses were they, did they have that they, you didn't feel that you had? The chief one that I started to look into was there were two. One was the balance because they were doing stuff with balance. You spend a lot of time on your head. You spend a lot of time upside down balanced on your hands. Mm. But it's not like gymnastics where you set yourself in place. You've got to kind of walk around and avoid getting kicked in the stomach and stuff like that. <laughs> All while you're upside down. <laughs> uh, so it's so like obviously there was something going on there because their balance, my balance didn't work like that when I started out. And the second thing is they were talking a lot about peripheral vision. They would say that they could see behind themselves or to the sides more than normal people. And, it, you know, most anthropologists what, we, what we're trained to do is just take our natives really seriously. Like, native tells me he's possessed. Great. What's that like? Then you go home and you're like, well, wait a minute. Is this plausible? 
Like, yeah. And, and so if somebody tells you I can see behind myself, you say, well, hold on a second. Is this plausible? In the end, I, I started to look into the neuroscience and the, and the sort of psychobiology of senses to find out if it was possible. And what, it, what was really startling to me is the amount of data that's out there on all kinds of people who train their senses into really fantastic configurations. And one of the best examples that I keep coming back to again and again is athletes, because athletes do stuff routinely that most of us can't even get close to doing. Here, here in Australia, I've, I've fallen in love with cricket. And, you know, to hit a ball thrown at you at between <laughs> at 90 miles an hour to 100 miles an hour is not just hard. It's actually impossible if you have normal vision. It was occurring to me that the time it takes for signals to get from your eyeballs into your brain, for your brain to process it. In, in an earlier podcast many years ago, Dan and I found it was about 7 milliseconds, I think it was, or 70 milliseconds. And th therefore, there's a delay between what you see in the universe and how and your brain saying, there's something coming. So if you have mm. something coming at you at 200 kilometers an hour, those 70 milliseconds, it's going to move through space, but you can still put your hand out and catch it, or as you said, hit it with a bat. So your brain is, is not just perceiving the world in real time, because we know it's not. It's extrapolating where it's going to be as well. Absolutely. And the more skilled the player, the more that they have these visual tricks that they do. So, for example, they run these tests in laboratories. And they do all kinds of manipulations, and they find out that a batsman, a good cricket or baseball batter, can actually anticipate where the ball is going to go as it leaves the hand of the pitcher. Wow. It, okay. So they can they can they can stop the video, all right, right there and make it go blank, and a good batter will still get very close to hitting even if they if their vision stops. So ball leaves the hand, the the goggles on you go black, hmm. you can't you can't see a thing, and yet you still get close to hitting it because you're so good at reading the trajectory from the batter's motion. So what's happened there is, you know, kind of sensory refinement, which I think is just it, it's a lot of skills. I mean, everybody from bird watchers to, you know, to all kinds of people have to do that. Gymnasts, circus hmm. performers, even people who do simple tasks like reading turns out reading requires the sensory system to be very specifically refined in order to do that. The I, fact that a lot of us do it just makes it less obvious to us how trained we are. The one that just sprung to my mind then is driving a car. Because we, ev we evolved on a Savannah and we sort of you know, run at 30 k's an hour, but I can drive a car at, at 100 kilometers an hour, 60 miles an yep. hour, and yet I don't crash on a regular basis. In, in fact, you're probably pretty chilled out. Which is amazing, considering like stuff is flying at you. Yes, you, you know, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a very cool ape, <laughs> traveling at 100 k's an hour. I'm certainly That's a cool. lot more chilled out than when I'm in the passenger seat and my <laughs> wife is driving. <laughs> oh. We're not going to touch that one. Um, right. She's learning, so that's a that's a that's a good. There you go. That's a, that's, well, fine. that's a good the, reaction. You know, they, they go back to the beginning of, say, film, for example, cinema. Hmm. And in some of the first cinema, they would sh there was a great example where they showed a uh, one of the earliest films shows a locomotive pulling into the station. And they projected this up on the wall. People were sitting in a darkened theater. And folks literally, like, dove out of their seats when the, the locomotive <laughs> came in because they, they, they interpreted it as a real locomotive. Hmm. So people were terrified of this thing. And I think we don't realize how – we have become adapted to everyday sensory things, driving, reading, watching a flat screen and making sense out of it, mm. especially given the way films have changed, you know, even the editing techniques. So all these sorts of things are human beings gearing up their sensory systems to do very specific tasks. And, and I just became interested in how that happens. Now, you say you're saying you different sorts of senses. 
Uh, but mm-hmm. I mean, it, maybe I'm just I'm trying to be too too reductionist here. Is it the sensors, or is it really just the plasticity, plasticity of the brain? As in, your brain is re- writing different software for itself, or rewriting its software. Well, that, that's actually kind of an empirical question, and I don't think it's the same for every single sense or training technique. You know, some of them are quite, you might say, late in the game. It's just the software and the brain interpreting the data differently. Hmm. But some of them are quite early, and they affect perception at a very immediate level. So, you know, the person is not even taking in the same data from the pattern of light or is not even taking in the mm-hmm. same pattern. So what we're finding is, and this is an empirical question, it's not just a theoretical one, meaning musicians might be different to people who use sonar for the Navy, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of what they perceive. Echolocators might be a really extreme case. And so to me, that's that's what makes the research so interesting is where is the learning happening? Is it's, the learning happening mm-hmm. in the ears? Is the learning happening in the connections to the brain? Is the learning happening much later in the whole flow of things just when you interpret the information. Oh, wow. So that's an example of the ears being amazing. What about the other senses? Like, are there people who have, like, super tongues? Well, absolutely. Get things like professional wine tasters, for example. We make fun of them because they use this sort of crazy Ponzi language of it's got maple overtones and lime aftertaste. Mm. But it turns out these things are really predictable. And a good wine taster will be fairly consistent. A good perfume tester or a good perfumery will actually be able to detect these things. And they have programs that they do to refine the senses. They actually get a a set of – it's almost like the giant set of crayons you got as a kid Hmm. that they get little little scents and and flavors to train themselves so they can actually pick out these different flavors and smells. I I used to eat crayons as a kid, so maybe I should try my hand at this. You're you're halfway there. You're halfway there. (laughs) <laughs> he stuck one in his brain once. He's much happier now. <laughs> so this, that's what, that's program. That's once again training yourself to smell specific chemicals on you know on, on a very diffuse level. Yep. Hmm, okay. So you know about all these amazing changes in sensory input. Have you ever sort of gone, oh, I'd love to be able to do that, and tried to train yourself to do something that you've seen someone else do there? Well, the reason it started, first of all, was because of the Capoeira, and I did that for about 15 years and wound up teaching it and, and stuff like that, and it performed in folk okay. festivals. I have another theory, Mr. Downey. Um, are you Batman? <laughs> <laughs> so we had Indiana Jones and now Batman. You, you can tell me. You can tell me. I have just about as many injuries as Batman from oh. my various endeavors. So, uh, I'll, yes. take the, I'll take that off the list then. <laughs> but then, for example, I also went and did Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because I became very interested in the difference between the martial arts. And, right. and that was a whole other – one of the things I became fascinated with when I was doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is the way people train – to resist pain and to be able to tell different kinds of pain apart because hmm. it you know because you think it makes martial arts oh it's all about kicking ass hmm. but but in fact a lot of it is and looking getting, cool but a lot of it is getting one's ass kicked uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> and hugging there's a lot of hugging in, in a lot of hugging a it, lot of sweating a lot of a lot of pain is it, it so, seems to be, every time i watch mma i don't watch it a lot but it seems to be a couple of punches a couple of kicks and then everyone hugs and like pounds the living tar out of each other in close range for those of us who like it the hugging is very very interesting. Uh, <laughs> um, so it turns out that when they're hugging, you're in a lot of pain. But you have to learn to tell which pain is really bad, and i got to stop doing what I'm doing, and which pain is like, oh, this is cool. This is just pain. Yeah. So, so one of the ones that really blew my mind was I was working with a guy um, from Brazil who was a really, really good practitioner. And I found it almost impossible to choke him. All right? Okay. And and he, he actually said, you've got to realize that choking is no big deal. And once you realize it's no big deal, 
it, it turns out it's really hard to choke you. Um, and I, this was, <laughs> as you might imagine, this was blowing my mind. Yes. Because okay? I've been choked and it feels like your eyes are popping out of your head. And the first thing you yeah. do is surrender, surrender as quickly as possible. So I, I've been choked once. A friend of mine was doing martial arts and he went, let me yep. show you this exciting technique. And, and he choked me. And uh, my monkey brain, uh, within uh, half a second, a second, panic. lost control. And I started scratching <laughs> at his face <laughs> like an animal. Like I was like, arr, arr, and because something very deep and scared went, you've cut off my oxygen supply, must kill you. Uh, and and so so yeah, choking is very scary. Well, it's very scary, and I think you're right when you say monkey brain. You know, it, these are what we thought of as innate parts of the brain, mm. but these guys are training them to react differently. And it sounds right. preposterous until you realize that we have great data on meditators and other people who can modify the way even automatic systems in the brain function. Right. So the culture, if you want to call it that, the the modification can go so deep it's getting down into the top of your spinal cord. <laughs> and that is again this is what was blowing my mind and one of the reasons that pain is so interesting because pain is not a i mean it's evolutionarily very old this is a really mm -hmm. old thing that a lot of animals got to feel to keep them safe so if humans can even train themselves to respond to that differently i mean that's that's getting in deep into the wiring sure. that's getting in deep into the automatic operating system and and making some modifications and so for me, I think that's the kind of one of the burning questions is how deep can culture go? Hmm. How deep can we modify ourselves? Is it just on the surface or is it in fact much more profound? And I think that the evidence shows that certain systems, especially if you really push it, can be modified very deeply. Just to jump back here for a moment, just just um, mm. so you're invulnerable to choking. I, I just want to write this list of things that can, <laughs> can and cannot kill Professor Greg Downey. So it, it's actually it's a requirement for my job, I think. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, you know, if you're going to work with 500 students, you got to be invulnerable to choking. <laughs> I wow, see. I see. Now, no, no, uh, I, I, Professor Downey, Professor Downey, you do realize you don't have to fight all your students at once. Like, it's it's that's not what you're. Maybe you do. He doesn't maybe. have to. <laughs> doesn't have to. It, it cuts but, down on the amount of time you have to spend fighting them. Um, <laughs> But sometimes no, the scientific curiosity gets the better no, of you. You're like, there, I wonder how, how many 18-year-olds can I take on in this room? <laughs> There's nothing that quiets down a class faster than somebody getting choked out. <laughs> wow. That's I'm, just... I'm, I'm, I can tell you. I'm excited and also terrified beyond human <laughs> comprehension at this point. Okay, so this is why he's only allowed to teach students via audio connection. <laughs> I'm actually in a cage as we speak right now. <laughs> okay, so, so you're saying that he's called to reprogram the brain. Now, would this being used as an anthropologist, have you seen this in what we'd call, in inverted commas, primitive cultures, like in rights of manhood or rights of adulthood, to, you know, when they have to, like, put, like, walk across hot coals? I'm just trying to think of any sort of oh, scarification. And that sort of stuff. Absolutely. I, I think that there's no way around the fact that when you look at practices like that, they're going to have neurological consequences. Mm. Most of the Western ways of dealing with neurological change are kind of slow and gradual, schooling. But some of them are not. I mean, think about corporal punishment of children. It's a pretty abrupt <laughs> experience to try to shape the way somebody reacts to things. Mm. And I think across different societies, they use different techniques for this. Contact um, lenses. Contact, yeah. Well, think of the Contact vision. lenses, you've got to suppress the gag reflex in your eye. In your eye. You and the first time you put contact lenses in, you're like, this yeah, is impossible! <laughs> what psychopath makes you put pieces of plastic in your eye? 
touch your finger. No, it's true. This is exactly the kind of thing we're talking about. People are extinguishing these innate reflexes all the time. Think about the food you eat sometimes and what your ancestors would have thought if they had put that in their mind. They would have spit it out. They would have said, God, this tastes like crap. You know, Mm. you know, why am I like beer, for example? You know, the first time somebody put beer in their mouth, they said, oh, God, this is nodding very abdomen. Dan and I have this interesting argument because Dan talk, Dan's the adult one here and he's even though I'm older, Dan's much more adult than me and he's like, oh, it's an acquired taste, Greg. You've got to learn to drink beer and wine and, and I'm like, why would you want it what, 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 the words acquired taste mean do something you hate until you until forget you, you hate like it. it. Yeah. And but I, that's what we're talking about. That's, 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 that's the whole crux. I understand. That, that, I get that. But to me, it's just like, I don't want to do something I hate until I like it. I just can't work out why you... Like, I don't drink coffee either, because coffee is a big liar. That's a, that's a different story for another time. Uh, that's, so, but and that's culture for you right there. Think about skateboard tricks. The first time you get on a skateboard, what do you do first? Fall on your face. Fall, you fall off, exactly. <laughs> Hopefully you don't damage something permanently. But... <laughs> If you want it bad enough, you will do it over and over again until your nervous system becomes capable of stuff that is unthinkable without that training. So one of the weird things about us as a monkey is we're the monkey that doesn't take no for an answer. You know, <laughs> We're just like we're the monkey that says, right, I'm going to acquire this taste or I'm going to acquire this ability even though right now I suck at it or it's terrible or it hurts or whatever it is. And in the process, I mean there's so many skills that require this, hmm. you know. Think about the first time you sit down to read with a child. It is incredibly hard, and you have to suppress all kinds of the, the tendency to glance off and not mm. follow the little, word, the little letters on the page. But over time, it becomes so fluid and so innate that you forget how hard it was to get it in the first place. Mm, yeah, it becomes automatic almost, like a, hard, like a, like a circuit, hardwired circuit. And, well, and we know that reliably, when, when you learn to read, There's particular parts of your brain that get co-opted to do that, and they become very, very good at picking out those letter shapes Mm. and the the ones that are specific to your language. So so in a sense, that's another example of sensory training right there. The other thing that's really interesting – there's many, but but one of them is because if you grow up in a culture with screens and reading and stuff like that, you disproportionately focus your eyes – between arm length and closer. And this will lead a lot of people to develop myopia. Oh, wow. Okay. So myopia, which is epidemic in literate, technologically advanced societies, is probably actually an adaptation of our eyes to the fact that we just never look that far away from ourselves. Mm. Hmm. So when, you, when you're asked to do it, you don't do it very well. Sure. Okay, I can see that. Whereas what I'm saying is the sort of flip side of ability is learned inability. For every ability, there's almost a learned inability that comes with it mm. i don't know how to chase down a zebra for instance that's right <laughs> absolutely you know people talk about primitive societies or foraging societies and i guess what i would say is they were doing this too they were training their bodies and brains we know for example that a child in a in a foraging society will not be able to catch enough calories for him or herself until very late in their teens maybe even their early 20s right. so they have to build up these skills we don't recognize them as skills because we think it's easy you know oh it's easy to get food in the in the rainforest no it's not mm. <laughs> it's not easy at all i've never been but i assume <laughs> yeah, it's, i just go to the local 7-eleven and that'll be fine hitting an animal with a stone or shooting with a bow and arrow or a blowgun or running them down on the desert turns out to be a really difficult skill and it takes years of training informally to get it so so our ancestors were doing this too and i think that's one of the things i want to capture in my research is when we look around we see all these skills that we have they're amazing but we got to remember that our ancestors had skills too very different skills yeah so why do human beings have this ability in such abundance and 
there aren't a lot of other creatures that do? That is a good question. And I would say that there's a, a number of different things that feed into it. One is a very big brain relative to our weight. Hmm. But it can't just be that because uh, uh, elephants have really big brains. Exactly. And whales exactly. have very big brains. So it's it's relative to body size, ah, right. you know, which is which is important. Second thing is a really immature brain when we're born. That is, when we're born, a lot of people point out that we have a growth rate when we're infants of our brain, which is matching the in uterine growth rate of other primates. Right. So ah. when, when we're when we're born, it's like we're. I always use this phrase, and students kind of look at me funny. We're like extra uterine fetuses for the first year. <laughs> you know, like we're like out of the uterus fetuses, yep. and that means we're absorbing tons of the in influences of the environment, mm. things like language, people talk to you. But the other thing I think you'd have to point to for skill is our motivational structures are totally changed. And let me give you one little story to explain this. Humans are really good at giving food to their infants. They share food. They give food to other people's infants. We love to play with infants. Chimpanzees have a really hard time sharing food. Even with their own children, mothers have a, will very seldom give food even to their own offspring. They'll, they'll nurse them, but mm. they won't give them food. And that that emotional life means that chimpanzees have a heck of a time trying to learn from other chimpanzees. Because right. if I'm a chimpanzee and I'm watching what you're doing, you're assuming that I'm about to attack you or, you know, need to be scared off. You're right. going to try to steal my food. Steal your food, yeah. Ah. Right. Okay. So so they don't really they, – they, they're – it's not just that they – have a hard time learning it's that they also have a hard time teaching would you know if pygmy chimps bonobos because they're a lot more social and things like using sex as a way of at least mm. genital rubbing to make everyone feel yep. better about themselves it would do they learn better is it mean sound very social that's right. <laughs> i tried that one everyone threw me out well that's right that's because you're not a, you're more of a chimp than a bonobo unfortunately all ah, right uh, but, but is, has been any, as far as you're aware has there been any research in that in the bonobo culture of, of a lot more learning of learning they're friendly that's a very good question. I don't know that there is. It might make sense. There's, there is less interpersonal aggression. Mm. But I do know that there are actually some other species of monkeys. So not chimpanzees, not even apes, but mm. some monkeys that are quite social that do food share. And they tend to have really intense social relations, like right. very cooperative. They live in large groups. They live very close together. They share. So it seems to be that there's a kind of crops up a few times in our family tree, even in some of the very distant cousins, mm. this really cooperative way of life. And so, it, so food sharing and, and that, that social aspect, that seems to be a major driver of, of our ability to learn. Well, and, and everything that goes with it, the lack of aggression when somebody's in close proximity, mm, mm. the the lack of aggression when somebody's looking at you. I mean, if one of the things they'll tell you when they deal with wild animals, for example, is don't look them in the eye. Yeah. Because I'm, if you look, I'm staring you look, at Dan right in the eye, and, and he doesn't want to look like he wants to kill me any more than he normally exactly. does. Exactly. He's not baring his teeth. Well, he's not growling at you no. yet. Well, he, he looks, after he looks a bit unfriendly, but that's just Dan. That's my that's my resting bitch face. <laughs> but we are a very non-aggressive, very cooperative primate, and this extends to learning. And I think that that's can I, actually can I just stop us there for a moment. I want all our listeners just to hear that from from Professor Greg Downey. Human beings are cooperative social creatures and we're not violent that's what we're saying here can everyone talk about how bad humans are and we're not that bad really no no really i i always joke with my students because i have this big lecture hall and i've got two or three hundred in there and i say you know if you think humans are so difficult to manage you should try to do what i'm doing right now with 200 chimpanzees in this room <laughs> that's why you learn capoeira like, so that it you would can be <laughs> impossible not only would they be fighting but one of them would be in heat and every male would be able to smell it yeah. and would be trying to mate with her 
Well, that, sounds, um, that sounds like college to me. <laughs> but it, like, le- like lectures would be impossible yeah. with, it, with the species. So to me, Hardly the whole anyone discussion... anyone throws their own poop at university. No poop throwing. Yes, no poop throwing in the room, which is good. <laughs> we look at our brains and we think, oh, they're great for doing chess or for strategy. Hmm. But what they're also really good at is just being chill and learning from each other and not getting in each other's faces. Because if we did, everything would be harder. You know, every kind of social interaction would be harder. The one that always gets me, we marshal resources around one person to do a thing, which is that mm-hmm. always amazes me. So, for example, the one that always, because I'm, space is sort of my thing, and the fact that we can, we sent three people to the moon, or well, two of them to the moon and, and one around the outside of it, yep. originally, but that was like a whole country of people that yep. required a whole planet of people that required all the money of the world just to keep it, make it happen. Uh, Absolutely. And, and, and that just wouldn't be possible unless we were shockingly social. Yeah, no, I mean, on that level, we have the kind of cooperative ability that you only find in like ants, yeah. where yeah. an incredible number, a huge population supports the collective endeavor. There's a famous anthropologist named Herdy. She's a really wonderful when she talks about emotional modernity, hmm. that our ancestors became emotionally modern. That is, they left behind the emotional life of other great apes and they took up the emotional life that we have. Hmm. Very concerned about each other, concerned about impressing each other, yeah. imitating each other. And that actually matters because hmm. if we didn't care about what each other thought, we would be much more like the other great apes. Okay, for example, I'm just trying to connect it to something here. Yeah. Roger Federer, when, when he plays a game he, and he wins, people feel they've won Wimbledon. Like they have that, yeah. a, a real feeling that they won it, even though they're sitting in an armchair and weigh 400 kilograms. But they had that connection somehow they say i support this man therefore i am that man almost to for the win anyway the sports spectatorship is one of those weird things a great example of that is if your team wins a, a game like let's say you're for man united or something like that and they win if you're a male you'll actually get a testosterone spike after the game mm. you feel so much like you've had a victory that you have the same biological effect that you would have if you were a chimpanzee who just beaten up a rival. Right. And that's just from yeah. watching it on the TV. So you get this kind of vicarious jolt that goes all the way into very basic endocrine systems, right. hormones, you yeah. know? And I think that's when I talk about culture brain influences, you just put your finger on one of them, you know, that, that vicarious watching ending up driving these very deep processes in the brain is exactly the kind of thing that I think we need to understand better. Brilliant. So it sounds like you've got a fairly upbeat and optimistic view of humanity in general. Oh, for the most part. I'm a little a little concerned about what we're doing with the environment. Um, but in terms of our abilities, I think we're pretty remarkable. Does that make it difficult when MI5 tasks you to kill, like, Russian dictators and stuff? Choke, choke them out, yes. No, definitely. <laughs> Where did that come from? Because I think I figured out who he is. Oh, right. Yeah, I think oh. definitely. Yeah, it's, I think it's hard. I, we, don't, we don't talk about that. We, we don't talk James Bond. Okay, don't mention it. Otherwise, someone's going to check you out, Dad. My, by, by the way, my wife would set you straight on that. Um. <laughs> Quite sure. She's like, he's no James Bond. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so many jokes there we're not going to go do. I think. No, no. <laughs> no, but I do, but I do think James that... James Bond and remember to put the toilet seat down. <laughs> One, one thing I do think is really important and, and it comes up in my research a lot is you have to be willing to study results from a lot of different fields to make sense of this kind of stuff. Mm. You know, you can't stay in your little box of doing anthropology or psychology or biology or endocrinology. You have to be willing to look all over the place because 
what humans do, if it does have this kind of culture to brain link, is going to cross all these levels that we typically keep apart when we, we think about them. All right, so, let's, so we, we sort of went into the whole sort of the brain part of thing. I'm just interested, I'll get back into the senses idea. Hmm. Can you talk echolocation before? And, and, and this, uh, there's, a, a, there's a growing number of people can echolocate because they need yep. to. So does that mean that we could create more senses as we require them? Do you think there would be something, or would we require a culture to back you up, if that makes sense? Or could I say, I desperately need to be able to do, to be able like to... Pers- recognise electric magnetic Yeah, that's a good, like, like, like magnetic field, that's a good one. So I want to be able to navigate by the, the light or something like that, or that, that. Is that something we could learn, or is that going too far, do you think? Well, it's, you've got to have some way of getting the information. But once you've got some way of getting the information, it turns out the brain is really good at dealing with it. So let me give you a weird example. There's been some research done with people who have their equilibrium systems wiped out by antibiotics. There's an antibiotic that when it has a bad reaction to the body will, will destroy your equilibrium system. Mm-hmm. So you take the antibiotic, you, you had a sickness, and you wind up with a way worse sickness, which is now you feel like you're falling all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, e- even if you're lying on the floor, you feel like you're falling. It drives people crazy. So... What a really amazing neuroscientist named Baki Rita did is he, cr- he put an accelerometer on a helmet and he stuck – in the end, he stuck a kind of electrode under the tongue. And it, as your head moved, it would send electrical signals to the underside of the tongue. And what he found is that people quickly – their brains learned how to interpret this information. So they could, through this tongue interface – actually perceive their bodies being in and out of balance. Oh, I see. I know that so, there are some people who are experimenting with putting little magnets, opening up the skin of their fingertips, yeah. and putting magnets under there, and they can actually sense north and south by <laughs> the, the movement wow. of those magnets. Okay, I had not heard that. I mean, I've heard that they can, I mean, because you do, your body starts to pick up that information. So if you give it information, hmm. I think what, what, the, what the exciting takeaway is that we thought we had to figure out how the, all the nerves worked for things like prosthesis, like new arms. And you have to hook the wire up from the little finger to the nerve for the little finger. What researchers have found out is you don't have to do that. You just have to give the arm systematic information and the arm and the brain will sort it out. Right. That is just amazing. And that... And, that, that that makes sense to me also because people, like, once again, the whole arm, if you get a, 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 an amputation, people, they join them up. Like, if it's, if it's far up the arm, they can actually join it much further. Like, the muscles are... Exactly. Different muscles seem to take over. So it's kind of like the plasticity can be released in these circumstances. And we're, we're learning how we can release this plasticity again. Mm. So there was an experiment I know that was done with a belt they put on people. And I can't remember what the interface was. It might have been the tongue interface, might have been an interface that just touched the body. And it detected north, south, east, and west. And it gave a systematic readout through this belt. And over time, people stopped feeling it as a sensation on their waist. Hmm. And they started to just feel it as that's north. So like when you touch something, you don't feel it touching your fingertips. You feel the texture. Like if you rub your hand over carpet, you're not like, oh, wow, that's touching my first finger and that's touching my index finger. And that's it's not Mm. you don't sense your body. You sense what what you're sensing through your body. Mm. And it it turns out when you put a new sense on someone, they will start to very quickly not perceive the interface, but just perceive the world. So mm, if you put if you let's say you created a sonar and you put the interface under somebody's tongue. At first, they'd be like, oh, wow, my tongue feels weird. But in no time at all, they would start to be like totally ignoring their tongue and just feeling the objects out in the world through that interface. So cyborgs are people too. <laughs> well, and well, actually, it's weird. Cyborgs, just jumping back to the car idea, Once when I first started driving mm. a car, I was hyper aware, of, you know, where's the side of the car and where's the person next to me and how fast am I going? And now after, you know, more than a decade of driving... 
now sometimes you can zip a car that you know very well through a space yep. and you don't even think. You just go, but you look, you go, yep, the car will fit and you slide through with like an inch on either side. Absolutely. And, and, this- and so the car has become my body almost. And we know that this actually shows up neurologically. You will take objects like that into your sense of self. And and when you ask, can we have new senses? I think absolutely. We will probably create cybernetic senses and people will get incredibly good at reading them. Hmm. We know it happens already with things like, like I said, Navy sonar operators. The longer that they do that, the better they get at it until they can hear things. They get very good at hearing things that other people don't hear Hmm. in that sound. And I think there'll be a space where we'll start to do more more of that in a kind of wearable, carryable way. I know with the Navy sonar, my father, he was in the military, in the Navy, and he worked in sonar. And he was saying, he wasn't in submarines, but he knew people who were. And he said, underwater, so the sonar people under there, they could hear the propeller wash from from a submarine or from a boat and a ship. And they could get, some of them were so good, they could go, oh, that's this size ship. And it's, mm-hmm. it, and it's going in that direction. And therefore, it's probably the USS Blah because they, they knew that's, it was in the area. And you're like, holy crap, just from the sound of the propeller. That's the well, well, I've got friends here in Australia who are birders, for example, and they can hear a bird and they can, you know, they, they know two or 300 different calls. Mm. And this is something, like I said, our ancestors have been doing this for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, getting trainable like this. So I think we're going to do it more and more. One of the most exciting things right now is not just rise of, better and better computer technology, Mm. but the possibility of actually creating new interfaces between these sorts of computers and us Mm. so that we become better at using them, not just that the computers themselves become better. So haptic feedback kind of stuff. Absolutely. You know, you think about gamers and Mm. what they've been able to do with, with remote control of different kinds of things. I just think that this is a field that's going to explode. We're going to be able to do things with firefighting, with emergency rescue, with disaster recovery, mm. all kinds of things using these sorts of like abilities. Remote surgery as well. That sort of stuff will be something we'll be able to do. I mean, we can kind of do it already, but have a machine that becomes part Absolutely. of your body across the world that you can control. And and we know that younger people, for example, who do video games are better at these sorts of techniques mm. because they have primed their nervous system to be able to pick up these kinds of interfaces. I, for example, I I can't play video games anymore, even though I did, you know, 20 years ago, because not only am I out of practice, but the interfaces themselves have become more complicated. Mm. And it's just very difficult now to handle with all the different controllers. But, but you know, our children will be able to do those. And, and it's difficult between fighting crime at night and running a billionaire company in the day. I'm a busy man. To find a busy time. Man. I understand that. And then teaching everyone anthropology <laughs> as well. I mean, you know, who's got time to play Halo? I'm a very busy man. No, <laughs> actually, the funny thing is I, I, I have, we have a horse farm here. And one of the things I'm interested in is human-animal relations. Mm. Um, my wife and I breed... Dad, dad, don't be like that. I breed horses here, yes. <laughs> not those kinds of relations. And and I think that some of these skills, for example, with animal handling are being lost, mm. that our ancestors would have been so... One of the ones that always strikes, we have a couple dogs. I think our ancestors used the dog's senses by perceiving what the dog was doing. And so probably one of the first ways that our ancestors used dogs was not to hunt with, but was because they were like alarm systems. Mm. So it's kind of like a fuzzy drone that sort of wanders your campsite. Exactly. And detects things for you. And then suddenly Mm. the dog starts behaving strangely and you realize a predator is around. Mm. But Mm. only if you're really sensitive to the dog's moods and expressions with its ears and stuff like that. So Mm. I think, you know, there's a lot of opportunity here. But I also think that one of the things that anthropologists can do is to tell us where we've already been not realizing, Mm. like where – as a species, our species has been. And therefore, it might be easier to go back down those paths instead of forging new yeah. ones. 
and and to realize too how peculiar you and I are in 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 twenty fourteen, and especially yeah. Dan. I mean, Aww. especially Dan to figure out how Dan is. Poor Dan. Well, he's very he's very <laughs> peculiar. Is our Dan? Mm. You know, I think I think it's we we really run a risk if we look at ourselves and say, oh, human nature is like me. Not mm. just because that's ethnocentric or biased or whatever, but because it ignores the amount of work that went into creating us as we are. And so we don't see the windows of opportunity that exist. Uh, give, give another example. I was talking with you know, Daniel Kish, this blind activist, and just hanging out with him. And he was getting his email. And he gets his email through a, a text audio converter. Hmm. It converts text into a stream of sound. And blind people or other people who use this can turn up the words per minute oh. faster and faster as they get better and better at it. Ah. <laughs> now, you and I normally speak at about 100 to 120 words per minute. Mm-hmm. Greg, a little bit faster, but a little yeah, bit exactly. Exactly. That's right. And Daniel and some of the people he works with can listen to between 400 and 700 oh, words per minute. Wow! I tried so, to speed up my I tried to speed up the, my podcasts to 1.5, and I'm like, I can't listen to these chipmunks. It sounds like gibberish. It yeah. sounds like complete gibberish. But to but to people who are trained and practice and work their way up, they can actually hear at you know four or five hundred words per minute. That's crazy. That's and typing speed. It, it's it's way beyond that. Oh, you know, oh, it's sort yeah. of. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's, it's exciting because it also means that if we realize this, there are skills then that the blind and other people who do this have that the rest of us don't have that might actually be really important. Because they'd you know, be able you, to process concepts faster then as well if they're well, to bring well, think about, you know, in. Like, think about like transcripts of court cases if you need to find something or think about listening to interviews to find information mm. if somebody has that kind of skill. So I think, like I said, when we realize that our nature is the product of this huge investment in our nervous system. It doesn't just come from the womb, but our nervous system is built up through all these training techniques. Then we also realize where there's opportunities to build new ways of configuring that nervous system. And I think that is a, a great place to end the podcast on. Thank you very much to Professor <laughs> Greg Downey for coming along. No worries. Well, I had to take some time off from my usual activities. <laughs> we'll find out your secrets one Rescuing day. Rescuing people, yes. No, it's, a, um, I, it's, it's been busy, but it's good to take a break and talk to you all. <laughs> What a wonderful interview with Professor Greg Downey, My a.k.a. Heart. Batman, a.k.a. James Bond of the scientific world. My heart is still a flutter. Oh, I'm so excited. Oh, sometimes you interview someone and you just get so excited when, about what they're talking about and how they talk about it. You go, ah, there's a science communicator. There's someone who knows what they're talking about and knows how to talk about it. Get, get me all flustered. It's very exciting. Well, f*** you too. <laughs> I love you, Dan. You know I love you. So thank you very much to Professor Downey. Thank you very much also to Elena Mitchell, who sent in and and gave us uh, and pointed us in the direction of Professor Downey. If you're listening to this right now and you know someone who needs to be interviewed, someone you go, they're not famous enough or powerful enough or sexy enough or whatever it is that they haven't got onto radios and televisions already, that's who we are. We're the guys who collect all the people who need to be heard who the, don't have a voice the dregs we know the dregs <laughs> no, the, the unheard masses the, yearning to have their voices heard the smaller wheat that got filtered out and ended up with all of us chat that's right yeah we will lift you up we are the we are the midgets that giants stand on <laughs> so stand on our shoulders giants yes but yes we would love to know about them. if you know anyone who who thinks in science or has a scientific point to make or something interesting they'd learn about or teach we would love to hear about it. Now, we are currently running a competition. Oh, yes. Just for the month. Just it's a little tiny a one. month. In fact, it's a 
Moonth. Ah, uh, nice. Thank you very much. Yes. A moonth. I mean, it's not. It's going to be like oh. 35 days, cause, but it's not it 28 okay, days. No, but... no, no, it's fine. It's fine. I know. But... Really, it was clever when I came up with it. Like, yeah, it was good. Month, month. But it, we have to name the moon. We have to name. We, no, mo- no, we don't have to name the no, moon. No, the moon is unnamed. The moon is unnamed. Someone has to name the moon. The IAU pointed out that the moon was unnamed. Yes. And that Chad, though... They the Earth's son. The Earth's son. They don't recognise it, but they said, we can call it that, therefore... We're naming the moon too. Yep. Well, you are. You are. So make sure that you tweet the name of the moon on Twitter and make sure you put smartenough.org so that we spot it yes. and tack it on the list. There have seen some great entries. We have seen some. A lot I of, don't want to blow any of them a yet. Lot of, a lot of girl names. Interesting, because I think Chad's a boy name. So some people went a girl name, which I can see why. Some of them really serious. Like Some of you go, oh, that's a really serious name. Yeah. Some of them really funny. Some of them are. Some of them are. I can't wait to go through them. We will in go the next through, podcast. Uh, it'll be very, very exciting. If I just say that we've got quite a few, and we're already kind of excited by them, but we need more. I'm Dan at SmartEnough.org, and I'm Greg at SmartEnough.org. Make sure you check us out on Twitter at SE2KB, and check out that thing called Facebook that all the kids seem to be really excited by. SE2KB, <laughs> and go to iTunes and rate us, rate our podcast, oh, and put sake, in a review. Oh, we need reviews. We need a review. What do you like about it? We're, we're naming the moon for goodness' sake. That does hurt. No. No, we're letting you name the moon. Would Dr. Carl let you name the moon? <laughs> he would be very against it, I'm going to suggest. <laughs> really against it, I'll really? really? Okay, we're going there. That's great. Uh, <laughs> that's something we're doing now. And always remember... Holy shit, it's science! Hi there, it's Dan here. This episode of Smart Enough to Know Better is sponsored by CivicNet Web Development. That's right, I own it. I don't want to blow my own horn, but I'm pretty good. If you need a website designed for you, or maybe you work in a business where they need a new website, why not contact me at dan at civicnet.com.au or check out the website. That's civicnet.com.au. Tell them Dan sent you. Tell, tell me that I sent you. I don't know what the problem was, but I'm glad we got it sorted. Yes. Yes, it's excellent. Yes, I'm, I'm still tentatively waiting for everything to catch fire again. <laughs> yeah, no, we'll see. Yes, That's it. I'm Dan. And I'm Greg. Okay. That'll be, this will be confusing, because um, I'm Greg, of course, That's too. Right. That's yes. right. We'll call you Professor Downey, Ooh. maybe. Uh, uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> We think we got it worked out. We think it was a, a wireless problem on this end, but that's all. Oh, okay, okay. I think my sister-in-law may have been playing Farmville at extreme speed. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> so she was selling Fair a enough. lot of wheat. A lot of wheat. <laughs> I'm loving a picture on Skype, by the way. It says, you hugging a puppy. Aw. Yes, that's my little boy, Louie. Aw. Louis is uh, named after St. Louis. Oh, okay. So that's where I'm originally from. Is that, so. I was say, you either met him there or you came from there because the whole song. I came from there. No, Louis and I, yeah, we met through a dating service. Now, I think both of you wouldn't, wouldn't know that song, but wouldn't actually know it's a girl from Ipanema.
All oh, right. Most people go. Oh, I so know. the elevator music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But from the, the elevator. It's the, from the elevator. From no. My favorite elevator hits, <laughs> but including my... Girlfriend Ipanema, Girlfriend Ipanema, Flute Edition. Girlfriend Ipanema. And Pan water sports. Flies. Come on, water sports. You have to do the end of water sports. I, I thought it, the whole point is that it never really ends. Da 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 da